Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you again this week. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, I'm, it's, uh, it's nice to be here. I'm, I'm feeling, I was just telling someone earlier today, I feel like I'm having one of those weeks where I'm not a surfer, but it's like where you, you're staying up on the board and it's feeling good, like you're riding the wave. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So far, so good. So far, so good. Like, I love nice- that. I'm not quite feeling that yet this week, Lindsay. So I'm going to okay. hope that is uh, contagious. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's <laughs> contagious. Well, yes, this will be hopefully um, a part of your week in which you can feel yeah. like you're getting back up on the board. So. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. I had a little bit of that last week, actually. I had the really fun opportunity to speak at a couple of events, um, which is so inspiring. It always gives me such like positive energy to meet and see people. These were both virtual, um, but this applies to both virtual and in-person events, of course. Um, And it was just so great. Um, You know, one of them was USGBC California Communities Women in Green. They were celebrating a 10-year anniversary. Yeah. Which is really fun. And that's coming um, as we're nearing the 15 year anniversary for the Women in Green book that I wrote with Lance Hosey, which I have a lot of feelings about that anniversary, especially especially since Lance um, unexpectedly passed away recently. And so it was a very emotional event, but really, really powerful too. And I met a bunch of young women working in this field who were just, I don't know, I'm so inspired by all that youthful energy it was great yeah. it was really powerful so oh, yeah. I'm yeah I'm I'm so glad I'm so glad because they're just useful for so many things right I mean it's 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 meeting people it's feeling inspired being able to recognize you know and take a moment for Lance and all of that it, yep. it's it's really important um, yeah yeah, yeah. It was good. It was good. Well, and I also I also got to keynote an event, an AIA New Orleans um, conference they do called Rising. Um, this was Rising 21. And it was that was really great, too, because it made me feel really positive about the learning and sharing that's going on in this community. Um, and I'm so impressed with what New Orleans and that particular built environment community is doing around the 2030 commitment and all sorts of things like that. Um, it's it was organized in part by this woman, Kelsey Wotilla, who I met at the last in-person event I ever attended before the pandemic, which was yeah. the Climate Positive Conference in March of 2020. So that was kind of a cool coming around moment. And also it was just, again, really fun to see um, and listen to and learn from a lot of people, engineers, architects, and many others who are really, you know, working at the ground level on all of this. And of course, for them, resilience and adaptation is a huge portion of what they're talking about. Of course. I know. I love that about, I love that about what it means to live um, in these places right now, the creativity that's coming out of it. I know it's all coming from loss and tragedy, but it is really inspiring. And I just admire the the way that designers um, in, you know, in the Delta are thinking about these issues. It's, 
it's incredible yeah yeah and man I have to say, I've started toying around with the idea of saying to people that this this upcoming living future will be the last virtual one because I feel that way. I feel like, you know, like, yeah, we, we got to get back to being in person yep. with each other, but I don't want to jinx anything. So I know, I know. It's, <laughs> I, I'm eager for it for sure. Um, yeah. I was touring a couple of projects yesterday with a big group of people and it reminded me of the value of that, the, the little incidental conversations and all of the things that happen in those kinds of settings that you just can't approximate. I mean, there's great things about virtual because it, it's actually, you know, terrifically inclusive in many ways. Yeah. But you just can't have those little side conversations in the same yeah. way. Yeah. And, and I, and I think sometimes people imagine that those side conversations are just kind of gossiping or social things, but sometimes they're really about the work. Sometimes they're really about needing to be able to speak frankly without sort of, you know, feeling just feeling a little bit outside of your normal day to day talking about the bigger picture. And I, I think we're, you know, it's those moments where you try to see the forest instead of the trees, but um, yeah, we, we don't have as much opportunity to do that right now. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. Soon. Well, I, I'm, I'm excited for it and I'm glad you had some good, some good gatherings uh, despite yeah. the difficulties. Yeah. It was a good time. It was some good surfing as you would say. Yeah. <laughs> so but I'm very, very excited and eager to get to our conversation with our guest today. So I think we should welcome Alana Judah. Yay, welcome Alana. It's such an honor to be on your show, uh, Kieran Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We're delighted that you're here. I'm gonna give a quick bio and then we'll jump into the questions. Alana Judah provides strategic consulting to building industry stakeholders through her firm, Acorn Resilience and Sustainability in Vancouver, BC, where she is currently based. She was formerly a principal and director of sustainability at FX Collaborative Architects in New York City, which is known for pioneering work on sustainable high-rise buildings. Alana was co-chair of the AIA New York Chapters Committee on the Environment. She was a board member of New York Passive House and a member of several New York City climate task forces. She's taught at Cornell and Penn. She lectures frequently and she has won numerous awards for her research. She recently completed her Master of Science degree from UBC's Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability with a focus on urban climate adaptation, which is perfect conversation for what I was just discussing. You would have enjoyed the Rising 21 conference. Um, and she received a Women in Sustainability Leadership Award in 2017 and is working with that group on mentorship. So Alana, I would love to start, um, if we could, with you just telling us a little bit about how and why you got involved in architecture and also in the sustainable buildings industry generally. What has been your path? Well, um, I have um, really goes back to my childhood, as, as I'm sure it does with many of your guests. And I've really had two paths, one architecture and one sustainability that have that merged together at a certain point. Um, so starting with architecture, um, since uh, early childhood, well, you know, probably around elementary school, I, I've always been a very highly visual person and um, still to this day have extremely vivid dreams about space and buildings and, 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 and was like that when I was young. And, you know, I remember my, my mother 
um, when we were looking for an elementary school, she took me to three different schools and I, I chose the one with the best daylight quality. So I was really sort of already tapped into that intuitively. And, you know, my dad used to bring home uh, the Sunday New York Times and I'd always kind of go to the magazine right away. And in the back, you know, back in the day, there was uh, the real estate section with all the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, apartments and, and homes with plans. And I would look at them very intently and, and trace over them. So I, I've always been very much connected to architecture. But then in parallel on the sustainability side, um, I grew up in a household where um, my father and stepmother were um, pretty deep environmentalists when I was growing up in, in Montreal, Canada. And that was the era of the Montreal Protocol that was happening, you know, all the, the sort of the issues happening with the ozone layer. So there, there was a lot of, you know, activity around that. And then in Canada itself, it was also the era in the 80s of the um, clear-cutting protests uh, in on Vancouver Island, Clakewood Sound. And so there was a lot of activism happening in Canada. And so my father, he was working sort of in, in a very corporate job and he did something pretty radical. He, he quit his job and started a small green business where he sold um, recycled paper and, you know, pesticide-free fabrics and filters and, you know, all sorts of environmental products and, and was very much involved in sort of the local community. And we were also a very sort of, um, you know, environmentally conscious family. We didn't own a car. We were vegetarians and we did composting back, you know, and again, when very few people were doing it and, you know, those types of things. And, um, you know, so so I was really brought up in this kind of um, set of very strong values for environmentalism. But the, the sort of strangely enough, the two paths never really merged because my, my dad wasn't involved in energy efficiency per se. So I never really understood that there was a connection sort of when I was younger um, so I went through architecture school and, you know, did a thesis project where I was sort of like almost touching on that, but I didn't, I didn't quite make the connection, you know, and this was in the 90s. So, you know, I was sort of, my architecture school wasn't necessarily focused on those issues and, but I, I had an inkling of something. And, uh, and then when I started to practice, you know, I was doing many different things. I was, you know, a design architect, a project architect. I worked in different firms on different types of projects. And then about, I don't know, about seven or eight years into my career, um, I started thinking about, well, what did, what did I really want to focus on? Um, you know, I was pretty well-rounded as an architect, but, um, you know, I, I, I knew that there was something that I, I, I should be focused on as I, as I move forward. Um, and I happened to be on a trip with a, a girlfriend of mine um, who's not an architect, and I dragged her to the, um, we went to San Francisco, and I dragged her to the William Stout bookstore, which I'm sure both of you know. Um, it's such a beautiful bookstore, and I climbed up on a ladder, and, you know, was poking around, and I saw this sustainable architecture white papers book, um, you know, the spine of the book, way up on on the ladder on, on a shelf, and and it was, it was sort of like, you know, that classic moment, the light bulb went off, and I was like, of course, these two things belong together, for me and, you know, bringing my values and upbringing together with my sort of aptitudes in architecture. And so that's kind of where it got started. Um, and then from there, you know, the path was just so clear and, and everything just flowed from there. 
Alana, I love that story. Um, and I have to tell you that book is in, on my shelf um, because I was involved with Earth Pledge Foundation and that book in editing it um, wow. way back in that uh, long ago era. <laughs> I haven't thought about it for a long time. It makes me so happy that that was a, a little piece of your, of your tale. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what you think people should know about um, working as an architect in climate and environment. What should they be good at or what should they be interested in? I know there's a lot of our listeners that are at some point in their career where they may be thinking about different kinds of paths. And I think your perspective would be valuable. Um, sure. I mean, there is so much to know and it's, um, you know, I, I'm constantly learning and constantly, I mean, that's part of the reason I know we're going to talk about that later about why I went back to school. Um, I think the, the sort of fundamental um, quality that's, that's important is, is critical thinking um, and really questioning things and, and learning how to ask lots of questions. Um, even beyond the boundaries of what, you know, you were taught as an architect and, and you know, that curiosity is so is so critical. Um, I, I think that, you know, as I've evolved in my career, um, the training we have as architects is is really, really valuable. Um, so learning how to think really from a, an integrated design perspective and even beyond to kind of um, embrace kind of a systems thinking approach, especially across scales, not just, you know, thinking about the building scale, not even just thinking about the sort of um, community scale or urban scale, but but even thinking about across disciplines. And I, of course, we can't all um, know everything in every discipline, but learning how to be curious about other connected, um, uh, connected subjects. Um, of course, things like, you know, engineering, technical issues, you know, uh, whether it's MEP or if you're getting into climate adaptation issues, certainly structural engineering becomes very critical and other types of engineering. Um, but as I've gone back to school, I've, you know, I've sort of learned more about climate science and, and social issues. And um, so they're, they're really, it's, it's very, very broad. And, and of course, um, we can't know everything, but I think just even reading about the basics. Um, and I would say one thing that I would stress that maybe I haven't received enough training in, um, whether it be in architecture school or even in my master's that we're going to talk about later, is really um, training about finance and economics, because that's the underpinning of so much of what we do in the real estate sector. And uh, I think architects, uh, it's so important for them to speak that language, um, uh, even though it's, of course, such a, you know, a different language perhaps than the language of architecture. Absolutely, that's such a good point that you make. Um, and it's really important, especially perhaps now, because I feel like, you know, the, one of the big issues to sort of converting the climate understanding is making sure that it is valued appropriately by the real estate um, community in terms of what they're thinking about. And that's really a finance question. Um, so I just wanted to, I do want to ask you about going back to school. So you were a senior leader at FX Collaborative when you decided to go back to school. Can you talk about why you made that decision, what you have learned, and maybe how that has changed your thinking or your approach? 
Well, it was a really, really, really difficult decision, um, extremely hard decision. You know, as you mentioned, I was a senior leader. I was a principal. I, I loved my job. It was a dream job. When I got that job working for Bruce Fowl and, and what was FX Fowl and now FX Collaborative, it was, you know, it, it was the best job I've had in my life. It, 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 you know, an incredible firm that is, you know, doing incredible work. And they gave, they supported me so much um, in, you know, trying to push the boundaries and so it was it was a really hard decision but I I knew I had to leave um and it wasn't it was because I I was sort of you know it's sort of that um you know seeing where you might be able to have leverage and and so what happened at FX is that I was I was involved in lots of things as you mentioned in my bio um beyond just projects uh, I was on several um, city task forces and I'd go to these 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 meetings and I I was seeing that I was able to have more leverage um, on some of these voluntary task forces than on many of the projects that I was working on. And not all necessarily, but I saw the power of policy. And I felt that I needed to go beyond the boundaries of a traditional architecture firm. Um, because of the urgency of climate change, and I'm not saying you can't make an impact in, in an architecture firm, but I, I was seeing that there was pot potential um, to go beyond, and I wanted to explore that. And I also had been for several years after Hurricane Sandy, wanting to understand more about how to approach the problems of climate adaptation and resilience. Um, you know, because it is such a different paradigm and there's so much complexity to it. Um, so I, I felt like I needed to sort of take a break from uh, from the sort of the work I was doing and sort of step back and, and go into sort of some uh, deep study mode. And um, and also to, uh, you know, after 10 years in New York and at FX Collaborative to to sort of take a I, I don't want to call it a sabbatical because I because I was working pretty hard in academia, but but I, I felt like I needed to process what I had done to date um, and reflect on where I was and orient myself to uh, where I could make the greatest possible impact moving forward in addressing the climate crisis. So it really kind of, um, it was almost like a turning point for me. And in terms of what I've learned, um, I think that you know, I, I deliberately went back to school, um, not in architecture. I went to study in an interdisciplinary uh, environmental studies department. Uh, and, and so it's really broadened my horizons. Um, you know, my classmates were all working on different problems, different research problems ranging from, you know, energy to natural resources to fisheries and agriculture and, and air, air pollution. So it was it was just amazing sort of the, the diversity of both the courses the expertise and and sort of my my colleagues so it really gave me a sense of bigger picture um which was really helpful for me because of course i had uh, no formal training in a sort of environmental studies i i had an architecture path so it, it really provided some some context and so i think my approach has changed in somewhat uh in the sense that I'm still very strongly grounded in my design and technical training and in certainly in design thinking, but I'm very um, 
I think leaning more towards that broader systems thinking approach and and questioning, well, how do we shift processes and how do we think about transformation? Um, you know, and it's it's not just about how we design buildings, but how we how we design systems. And so, again, I think yeah, broadening my horizons. Oh, this is so good. It's you know, I'm reflecting on how. Alana, it's like um, we, we recently had a guest on Katie Ackerley, who I, I know well enough to know that she kind of did the same thing, but in the opposite order, where she started with an environmental background and then decided to go get into architecture. But when I thought about it, it's like, well, is there a difference here? But I actually think it's a similarity of wanting to have both um, this broad and also the, you know, your this, the the craft of architecture, you know, broad understanding, a broad sense of what's going on in the world and what these systems are. And then also having that experience of, you know, it's just super fascinating to think about how different people um, take these paths into, you know, in different order. But I, I think they're both, they're really complementary. I don't know if you, if that makes sense to you, but if they feel complementary to me. They, they do. And I, I still think that, you know, I, I, we could almost have a whole separate conversation about, you know, education, but I think as the world is changing, uh, you know, it's really important to think about how we are educating the next generation to solve problems. And I, I know lots of people are thinking about this, but, you know, question of, you know, is uh, a traditional sort of architecture school program um, still the appropriate approach? And, and maybe it is in some instances, but um, I think, you know, trying to understand how we're solving these more and more, you know, uh, critical climate problems uh, and what the skill sets are. Um, yeah, it, you know, to me, it was natural to try to understand those things, but certainly maybe not the most conventional approach. So, yeah, yeah I, I think that, that we should be questioning those, 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 um, those paradigms. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's, that's super cool. Um, okay. Well, um, let's talk a little bit more about, about your work. Um, some of the fun details of it. Um, I want to start by asking you um, so far what you are most proud of accomplishing in your work life. Well, the victories aren't always what you expect them to be, you know, what I'm most proud of. So, you know, as an example, you know, getting a uh, an affordable housing project that had a lot of challenges, you know, of course, the preeminent one was was uh, financial, you know, to just a baseline lead certification, it can feel extremely victorious and maybe even more so than like a class A lead platinum building that has, you know, a good budget and so forth or a net zero project, you know, you're, you're up against those huge obstacles. Um, not to say that, of course, a, a net zero project isn't a, isn't a huge accomplishment, but, you know, in my career, sometimes it, it's surprising um, the things that have given me a sense of, of, of pride. Um, but I would say, generally speaking, two, two specific things. The first is that I'm most proud of um, the partnerships and teamwork aspect of, of the work. Um, you know, as, as of course, you both know, nothing in this field is about working alone. I mean, nothing I've done is, is a result of just my, my solitary work, even my academic work was so collaborative. 
and you know i might be the conductor or the you know hub in the in the wheel but there's a whole ecosystem at work on any project so i'm most proud of those really amazing partnerships and and teams and i would also say that while i'm very proud of a lot of my project work um, the work that I've done that goes beyond the boundaries of one project to sort of make a broader and potentially transformative impact um, are, are sort of the, the projects I'm most proud of, such as um, the tall building passive house study that um, I was co-author of uh, at FX Collaborative, which really influenced the industry. Um, and also um, the recent work I did um, on the Integrated Building Adaptation and Mitigation Assessment Framework um, uh, at UBC for BC Housing, which I, I, I think is going to have a pretty, um, it's, it's going to be pretty impactful, at least in, in British Columbia. So, so I'm really proud of those kind of broader um, types of work that I've done. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk more about the framework um, project, um, IBAMA, which I, it's, I don't know, there's just something that makes me happy about that acronym. Um, <laughs> so can we talk more about, about IBAMA? I, I just am hoping, I think listeners might like to know more about that as, as a project, as a concept. Uh, absolutely. Um, so um, IBAMA, which I mentioned, stands for the Integrated Building Adaptation and Mitigation Assessment. Um, it, it, it started when I was, I guess, in my first year at UBC. Um, I was really interested in neighborhood and community resilience and was originally going to focus on a thesis that was back in New York and looking at the neighborhood scale, which I think is a really important component of resilience, but often um, there, there's a there's not a huge amount of work being done at that neighborhood scale. So I was very interested in that. But my professor came to me uh, with a grant opportunity um, from this organization called the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions. And uh, they had this really interesting model, which Lindsay, you might be or both of you might be familiar with, but Lindsay, you know, given your academic work, where basically the researcher has to apply with a what's called a solution seeking partner, which is somebody from uh, could be someone from industry, government, um, nonprofit, but basically a non academic partner who's looking for a particular solution that the researcher can help them with. So someone connected me with BC Housing, which is basically the housing authority for the whole province. And um, they have a, um, a research initiative uh, internally called Mobilizing uh, Building Adaptation and Resilience. So they were already trying to figure out how to incorporate adaptation and resilience into their uh, sort of processes. And so we applied for this grant. Uh, we got really lucky and we won the grant. And so I worked with them. So my whole research process, they were kind of like uh, my clients, although they weren't as um, in the weeds as maybe a client would be. Uh, but they brought together all these stakeholders, um, even from the federal government, you know, down to sort of the local city of Vancouver and practitioners who, you know, were involved in workshops as I developed this framework. And basically what it is, it's designed for housing. But it's a it's a process based approach where project teams work in a really 
sort of integrated way uh, to get an understanding of, uh, first of all, the, the vulnerabilities um, of both the project and the community, the hazards that they might face over the lifespan of the building, taking into consideration um, different climate scenarios. So, you know, not just thinking about what's historically happened, um, but thinking about well, what, what happens if we're, you know, in an RCP 8.5 situation, a business as usual situation, what's going to happen in 40 years to our building? So thinking about all of those variables, um, also thinking about the level of neighborhood resilience. So how resilient is the, the community? And then coming up with very specific uh, goals um, around climate adaptation and resilience. So we often talk about strategies for resilience, you know, flood protection measures or dealing with heat. But what are what are we trying to achieve in terms of goals? Is is it related to, um, you know, protecting certain vulnerable people, providing um, certain levels of comfort? So getting into those specifics, and then overlaying those adaptation goals with our um, mitigation and sustainability goals, and then looking at proposed strategies together, you know, and, and making sure that, you know, for example, to use a very, very simple example, um, which is very salient for what happened in the recent heat wave here in the Pacific Northwest is like, well, we could just provide air conditioning for everybody because many people here don't have air conditioning and that solves our our problem uh, from the adaptation perspective. But what does it say about sustainability or what does it say about mitigation? So how do we think about our goals um, for both? How do we propose solutions to ensure that we're trying to be as synergistic as possible and we're trying to be aware of what the trade-offs might be? So that is in essence what IBAMA is and it's, um, it's got a lot of flexibility in in the tool because it is um, it is a process based tool that asks questions rather than, you know, saying, OK, you get so many points for doing this. And so in that sense, it tries to address some of the issues related to affordability, equity, um, the different issues that, um, you know, different regions and different demographics might face with respect to um, both adaptation, but also trying to achieve some of the um, mitigation targets. Yeah, there's so much there. I love this idea of a, a process-based tool. There's a, sort of a, an expansiveness, a humility to it. I don't know exactly how to say this, but it's like, uh, I'm just thinking about all of the ways in which those kinds of tools, I think, in our work have been the most powerful oftentimes because people just don't know how to go about answering the question. It's not that they don't necessarily know metrics or, you know, so I love that. And I love, I, I think, I don't know, the other thing I want to say for those of you that may be sitting there thinking about your career paths is it, it's so cool to hear that in many ways, the work that you did in academia was was collaborative and was very based in the real world. And I think sometimes people imagine that going back to school means that you're somehow removing yourself from that. And you found that opportunity, you created it for yourself to some degree. Um, but you know, if people are interested in the idea of going back, learning something new, broadening your horizons, it doesn't have to mean that you kind of detach, you know? Um, so anyway, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, and I, and I should mention also, it was, yeah, it was, it was amazing for me because I, I, I was, I felt like I really 
was able to help this organization. And what's so exciting about it is that after I finished my my studies, um, I sort of went on to um, consult for BC Housing amongst other other projects um, to pilot IBAMA. And so we, right. we run a pilot on um, a housing project here in Vancouver and um, that's in design. And um, they've actually, the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change uh, in British Columbia has seconded um, somebody for one year to BC Housing and his title is IBAMA Pilot Project Lead. And he's responsible for running a bunch, I guess a whole, you know, probably at least three or four pilots over the next year uh, to pilot the framework on different types of projects in different locations and also obviously make um, adjustments to the to the framework um, as 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 they go through learning. So it's incredibly um, rewarding for me to see see that as well. Yeah, yeah that is awesome. Congratulations. Um, I hope everybody checks it out. Uh, and that actually that leads me to my next question, which is what what's next for you? What are you what are you thinking about doing or where is this taking you? Well, I, um, you know, I after sort of the whole academic process, I, I started um, this small consulting practice, ACORN, um, Resilience and Sustainability, and I've done, um, you know, uh, some consulting here on some really interesting projects. Um, but uh, now my significant other and I have decided it's time to start uh, thinking about going back to New York. So I have been looking for opportunities back in New York City. Um, I'm really looking for a role, as I mentioned earlier, that can make an impact that that also looks at a more integrated climate solutions. So, you know, integrating, you know, the mitigation, the adaptation, but also issues of equity um, and environmental justice. Um, so I'm really trying to look for a broader role that 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 sort of offers um, a, an integrated approach. That's fantastic, Alana. I think that's exciting. Um, big transition coming ahead. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens with IBAMA and we'll be following that as I'm sure you will be as well. Um, but as it's interesting, so as you're about to make this transition back into perhaps a firm of some sort or an organization um, and out of the you know, consulting and academic environment in which you've been flourishing. I'm just curious, uh, we always like to talk to our guests about how they see this, the green building industry, which is often referred to as a movement. Um, and I'm just wondering if you feel like you're a part of an industry or, or a part of a movement or, or how you think about those things for yourself. Well, that's, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, in, in a way it's happened so quickly. Uh, it feels like it's happened so quickly. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, I, I sort of grew up in this environmental, maybe some people perceive it as hippie fringe um, when, I was, when, when I was young. And so it's sort of fascinating to me that these issues are pretty much mainstream to, today. Um, and that everybody, you know, or almost everybody is talking about them. So I'm really, really excited about that. I think, you know, uh, there's sort of those early adopters and the innovators, you know, the bell curve of the early, 
innovators and early adopters. And my father was certainly at the very front of that curve. And now, now we're sort of in, you know, we're almost on the other side of that bell curve. So it, it's exciting in that sense. Um, but I do still worry about things like greenwash and, and, you know, creative accounting and those types of issues as I'm sure you, you both do as well. Absolutely. Worry about those all the time. <laughs> um, it is interesting, I think, the sort of mixture of what comes, the, the, the pros and cons that come with the mainstreaming. Um, I think that's true for a number of reasons. It's also true about, you know, it's great that these topics get more attention and that, but that also means that, you know, who's at the table is changing a lot too. I don't know. There's a lot, a lot of pieces of that, um, that that whole dynamic that um, affect the conversation. And I do feel like, and then we have to be careful, right? To, you know, about calling out greenwash and creative accounting and other things that concern us while we want to continue to encourage <laughs> the uptake <laughs> on all of this. We also have to be, we do want to be, um, to make sure that, you know, the standards are, are high and then it not turn into just a whole, marketing exercise, which Absolutely. a lot of it's happening. It's certainly happening in a lot of sectors, but um, well, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, in, we're in the 2020s now um, as a movement and an industry. And I'm just curious about where you thought we would be by this decade, <laughs> by this point. <laughs> um, well, I, I try to live in the present. <laughs> as much as I can, um, although that's sometimes challenging. But so I'm not sure I had a clear idea in terms of, you know, things like carbon emissions or energy or other metrics. But, you know, growing up the way I did, I definitely had a vision for how I thought we should live more sustainably and healthfully. And that's where I think architects also can bring to the table, um, you know, that sense of visioning of, of you know, what society can be and, and they have certainly done that in the past i'm not saying they always did it in the right way you know we've, we've seen some um you know problematic outcomes as well from some of those visions but you know i think that architects have a role um as well not just beyond the sort of technical um aspects of of, of sustainability and green building and climate adaptation but really presenting a vision for what makes for happy and sustainable living and so I had that vision, you know, and I guess what I what I feel is that I'm, you know, I'm disappointed to see that our culture is still excessively consumption oriented. You know, even as we're transitioning to renewable energy and, you know, we have all these amazing sustainable technologies and, and ways of building, we as a society are living in bigger homes, driving bigger cars, getting on more airplanes, and eating more meat than our grandparents did. And, and that's a problem to me. You know, it's detrimental for planetary health, but as the world is getting faster and requiring more energy and creating more stress, it's also detrimental to our own health. And I'm, I'm not against technological advancements at all. They've been great in many ways. But I think that there's something to be said about um, you know, thinking a, bit, a little bit more from a conservation perspective um, for our own well-being as as well as the well-being of 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 the planet. Mm, I love this. It, it sort of reminds me of, I guess I I often some, these days draw it out to capitalism and our desire to have 
to to yeah to buy our way out of the problem that we've created uh, it's it's so much easier it would be so much easier if it worked that way because that's the that's the constraints of the society that we live in and yet so much more damaging and and yeah i love this idea of like the grandparents um and the, the lives that they were leading because i think a lot of people really look up to their grandparents but very rarely think about what did they own how did they actually get around how often did they get in a plane on a plane in their life um yeah I, I totally see this okay so 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 maybe a little more specifically where do you see progress areas in the world of sustainability and buildings today um where and where do you think we're not making enough progress well i think there's you know we're sort of at this tipping point of progress in some ways you know there's tremendous technical expertise technical technological progress um mainstreaming you know general awareness you know from all sorts of people i mean my mother asks me about climate change almost every time i talk to her um you know and and she you know she's not at all sort of um in that you know field um so that's all really exciting the energy transition is really exciting um you know and even things like you know that the fact that we have a task force on uh, climate related financial disclosure um, and, you know, major corporations are talking about these issues and, um, you know, that's amazing. And um, I'm also encouraged about they're still very nascent, but the efforts regarding equity, environmental justice and, you know, especially sort of living here in British Columbia, there's a lot of work being done on sort of um, indigenous practices and traditional ecological knowledge from indigenous communities. So those are all really positive um, sort of measures of, of progress. Where I see a lack is in the sort of, again, coming back to that sort of attitude of environmental conservation and a visioning that goes beyond the numbers and the metrics. And, and you know, I, I know that uh, Kira interviewed um, Sylvia Smith, who's a partner at, at, at FX Collaborative for her Women in Green book many years ago. But, you know, Sylvia's uh, did this project. Um, she was partner in charge of the Center for Global Conservation at the, uh, I guess it was located in the, at the Bronx Zoo. And, and you know, this is where we need to have that vision. It's a great example where the client came to her with a program and she questioned the program. And she, she ended up, through her questioning, reducing the amount of space by over 20%. Um, in terms of the, the footprint of the building. And, and so that's sort of the attitude that I feel we need to embody is like that attitude of conservation before we try to optimize and make things efficient. And, and you know, in that spirit, it's kind of like if you go back to, well, what's the, what was the American dream? It hasn't really changed since World War II, I think, you know, and yes, some people, more people are not achieving that dream, you know, because of economic reasons. But that dream of sort of the land and the house and, and more, you know, maybe that needs to change a little bit. And, you know, maybe it needs to become something where we, we can be a little bit more modest and, uh, you know, a little bit more sort of conservationist. And, and as you said, Lindsay, maybe that doesn't align with economic growth and capitalism. And, and so I know that some people might not be on board with that, but but even if we could dial down our consumptive urges by that 20%, you know, going back to, to the Center for Global Conservation, 
um, you know, and think a little bit more about that sort of less is more adage, um, you know, that I'm appropriating from Mies van der Rohe in a slightly different way. But, you know, thinking about, well, you know, do we actually need that extra space? Do we do we need, you know, do we really, really need that? And um, is that is that creating value for us? Mm. That's great. And also, I really appreciate the appropriation of Mies on the less is more thing. <laughs> I think we get to take that. I'm, I'm in. Uh, Please. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make t-shirts. <laughs> yes, do it. Oh, man. Okay, great. I'm I'm in. I will take a t-shirt. Um, okay, well, we, we have so much more, clearly, to discuss and to work on together in the future and all of these things, but we are just about out of time. So we want to wrap up and ask you our last question. I'm very excited for your answer on this one because you've been just, you know, um, in that mode of watching and listening. So who are you most inspired by these days? Anyone, anywhere, anything? Well, I recently, um, I guess a couple of months ago, finished um, Al Gore's climate reality leadership training and um which was incredible um and different than i expected and i was deeply moved um you know they had presentations by various people besides al gore uh, of course who who was presenting but um they had presentations by activists working in places all over the world including many developing countries you know young ones older ones and some of whom um were indigenous peoples. And uh, some of these um, activists are working in places where their lives are literally at risk for doing this work. Um, you know, last year in 2020, there were 227 environmental activists that were killed. Um, at least what was documented is <laughs> there were 227, maybe there were more. Um, but, you know, these these people have no choice but to act. And, and you know, they are at the front lines. As one Indigenous African activist pointed out in the trainings, they live directly off the land. You know, if it floods or if it doesn't rain, they have no food, they have no money, they have no livelihood. And so I think we have a lot to learn from them because they are, you know, they are on those front lines. So, um, yeah, I was just so inspired by their motivation um and their drive mm. yeah that's a wonderful one um okay well uh i think we have to wrap up um this has been awesome i'm so excited for you i'm so excited for all the work that is to come um and yeah thank you for bringing the perspective to us thanks for being with us Thank you both. It was a it was a pleasure, and um, I really look forward to listening to your upcoming podcast. They're they're all so fantastic and inspiring. Oh, thank you. Well, we we have fun, um, and yeah, Kira, good luck keeping yourself on the on the surfboard this week. Thank you. I'm inspired, Lindsay. You've got me. I'm I'm buoyed by your by your report of your week thus far. So <laughs> all right, cool. All right. Well, that is it for us this week, everyone on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It's working. People are finding us. Keep doing it. Uh, stay safe. We'll see you next time.